we are uh, looking and dis- at and discussing uh, the effect of ideas on the possibilities of sensing the soul, the impact there, the place really of ideas and concepts in um, soul-making meditation, and unfolding, wanting to unfold, um, open up and discuss uh, several uh, practice possibilities uh, in uh, as we go. And so I want to begin to look at uh, just a little bit at a few um, ideas and images and practice possibilities from the uh, Mahayana tradition or the Vajrayana traditions as well um, in Buddhism. Um, but just to say, just as a general point, um, as well as uh, e- elaborating on and hope, hopefully uh, suggesting and making available by opening up and looking at these different uh, practices um, practices and ideas and um, images as we discuss them as well as the ones that we uh, dwell on a little bit um, as as I'm talking and and this applies to the past talks as well there's actually depending on how you listen there are actually many possibilities many practice possibilities um, implicit uh, or available to be drawn out from um, ideas that I may just briefly mention or just touch on or just as an aside or mention something um, so just from the last um, part of this talk for example uh, I quoted the Eastern Orthodox um, teacher Maximus the Confessor and uh, he, he wrote or said um, God the divine Logos wishes to affect the mystery of his incarnation always and in all things the divine wishes to affect meaning with an E effect um, at the beginning so the divine wishes to manifest to bring into being the mystery to make apparent the mystery of his incarnation always and in all things actually to affect means to to make not just to make appear but to actually make see back to that um hegelian notion or similarities of the hegelian notion of um uh God needing something to manifest and and needing perhaps our participation. But the point I want to make right now, the main point uh, in in regards to this, is one could take that that sentence from Maximus the Confessor, and if there's any hearing it, so listening uh, with with a receptive ear and heart and soul so if there's anything that resonates in that phrase and one's like, I don't even know what he means um, but something something just touches I can sense it touch I I'm, can listen uh, with a more poetic hearing perhaps reflect a little bit um, let it land in the soul and the soul uh, can hold it for a while in in its womb and it can just stay there maybe just for a little while and out of that um, that idea or the ideas that are encapsulated in that one um, sentence from Maximus the Confessor for example um, may with a little reflection with a little poetic hearing actually generate then the possibilities of all kinds of 
um, shifts in ways of looking that we can then actually practice and experience and implement and see what happens. And that might happen um, very spontaneously, organically, without much effort on our part, or it might be that, we, as I said, we have to reflect a little bit, let it gestate in the soul womb, so to speak. Um, but one has to listen poetically for this uh, to be able to translate, to be implemented, uh, so that it, it delivers or opens up for us some possibility or other, or maybe many possibilities from that one sentence um, of sensing with soul. Um, so one really, there is the possibility here, it's very rich uh, in terms of different possibilities that we can hear, that we can open to hearing in a certain way and they become for us, uh, they, they offer or suggest possibilities or the soul uh, converts it in a way to possibilities um, uh, of sensing the soul. And again, we can combine ideas so that we hear that sentence uh, from Maximus. Uh, the divine wishes to affect, to manifest the mystery of his incarnation always and in all things. And we may combine that with other ideas that we are sort of have digested or beginning to digest in the larger logos of what we're talking about. So for instance, um, that, uh, as I mentioned, um, Perhaps it needs our participation, this um, effecting or manifesting or making, uh, bringing into being of this mystery of the incarnation always and in all things. Perhaps it involves our participation. So we're emphasizing this participation. Participation of what? Of my mind, of my poetic hearing, of my listening, of my heart, of my, of my sensing. Perhaps uh, I hear that and in order to liberate the potential there for sensing the soul, I actually have to combine it with some understanding of emptiness that I have. Uh, and so perhaps the divine is uh, empty or the incarnation um, is empty or whatever. Um, so there's, there can be a, a you know a, a very creative um, com- combining of ideas to generate this kind of potentially infinite range of possibilities for sensing the soul. But we have to hear um, poetically. Words can be stretched from their kind of narrow, rigid meanings. So something like incarnation, some, some, depending on your background, you might hear that in, in such a sort of literalist manner. And may, maybe that works for some people, but um, we can really expand um, uh, a lot of the words in that, in that sentence as an example. If we, if we uh, allow ourselves to enter into um, uh, the poetic uh, sensibilities, or as I said, uh, uh, used the phrase on a talk, um, I think it was the path of the imaginable, the Midrashic condition, meaning the condition of this open, pliable uh, soul listening and soul reading and soul um, fertility that's open to multiple, possibly infinite interpretations. The Midrashic condition of one possible sentence. So, as I'm talking, or as I have to, you can go back and um, perhaps this has already happened to you, listening, and one phrase or one sentence um, 
you know, jumps out or even go back and, and listen for those um, odds and ends that are interspersed uh, in, in what we're talking about and perhaps pause with one. And what is it to enter into that logos, that idea that's expressed in, in some idea that's just briefly talked about? What is it for that logos, that seed, to enter into the womb of your soul? Um, takes a certain listening, takes perhaps a little pausing, takes a little, uh, as I said, turning the soil in the soul, the soil of the soul, and, and, and a little bit of working and receptivity. Or as another example, you know, I mentioned, oh, perhaps we can say there's different ways of uh, ideas we can have about perception, uh, different ways, conceptions we can have about perception, and that we can conceive of it as a gift and a grace from soul, from the divine, from some, you know, from a divine, uh, and we can conceive of it instead as work or as opportunity. Um, and uh, the, the, again, here are three conceptions, for example, not, not at all that they are, uh, that's an exhaustive list, <clears throat> but here are three conceptions, three ideas, and what would it be, again, to let them enter the womb of the soul as, as seeds, these ideas, these logoi, these conceptions are seeds, and they, they're sort of mulled over or turned, planted in the soil, and that soil is turned, and then, and then they can generate ways of looking, or suggest ways of looking uh, and sensings with soul. Or some etymology or other I might just throw out, oh, by the way, in Latin that means that, or in Greek this means this, or Sanskrit, or whatever it is. Um, you know, uh, partly the reason I'm, I'm doing that, um, uh, in, in fact, the only reason I'm doing that is, is really to, to suggest things poetically, to open up possibilities by, uh, by, by these seeds of, of logoi, these seeds of ideas. So one can, as you're listening, if you want, or if you're listening, you know, second or third, or however many times, you can um, pause, extract something, and linger with it. Okay, as I said, really what I want to do is that's just a sort of uh, note, um, general point. But um, what I'd like to do is, as I said, look at some uh, Mahayana ideas, images, practices, and Vajrayana ideas, images, and practices. And <clears throat> if I start with the Buddha Amitabha, um, he was the Buddha of the Western Paradise, or the Western Pure Land, and uh, is a very, um, in Mayana, in, in all the, you know, globally, this is a very popular Buddha. Uh, there's a lot of orientation towards this Buddha and his Buddha field, his pure land, um, in all kinds of ways, um, in different Buddhist cultures um, still today. And so some people will pray. It's quite common as a prayer to Amitabha, a prayer to be reborn in, in the next life or in some future life in his pure land. And there's de devotional practices and, and all that. So I'm interested in how we might uh, open up that idea, that image, and uh, what kind of what that might suggest um, to us for possibilities of practice um, linked in with this sensing with soul. So actually, let's start with some etymology here. Amitabha. Amita means uh, mita is is uh, M I T A in Sanskrit is um, to measure. 
Ah, before means is a negation, so um, unmeasured or measureless or boundless or infinite. So infinite, infinite what? Infinite aba, um, A-B-H-A, uh, which is from the uh, verb abha, bhati, uh, which means to shine or blaze towards, uh, to irradiate, to illumine, or to uh, appear or become visible or apparent. So usually the translation we get for Amitabha is um, limitless light. Amitabha, limitless light or, or something like that. Um, or uh, limitless radiance or something like that. But it can also mean, because Abba is to appear, to become visible or apparent, it might also mean limitless appearance. It can also mean, uh, Abba, that verb, uh, to look like, to resemble. Um, so you can hear a little bit. Um, Abba as a noun also uh, it can mean splendor or light or flash or color. Again, or appearance or beauty or a reflected image, or an outline, a likeness, or a resemblance. Again, so usual translation of Amitabha is uh, limitless light, the Buddha, of lim- Bud- the Buddha named limitless light. Okay, and that's very lovely, and that can open up its own direction, absolutely. But it tends to suggest, um, for instance, a kind of um, infinite oneness, of, of different, some kind of infinite oneness, etc., which is wonderful, and we've, we've been through all that. But if we take a slightly different route with the etymology, a different possibility offered by the etymology there, then we might get something like um, infinite appearance or or, or uh, uh, limitless appearance, uh, limitless um, resemblance or appearances or images, right? So the Buddha of infinite appearances... What does that sound like to you? Does that suggest um, this the the Buddha of the world of uh, of of soul making, of sensing with soul, of the infinite possibility that's generated in the eros psyche logos dynamic and that potential open endedness there, and the generation of um, uh, sensing more dimensions, more aspects, generating, creating, discovering more images. Amitabha in the pure land, in this land, he goes with his his uh, cosmos, if you like, his land, um, the 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 pure land of Amitabha, the land, the mundus imaginalis. So we can um, potentially open up uh, a slightly different meaning for Amitabha, and that Buddha and that pure land. Amitabha is also said is is used interchangeably as almost like, so he has another name, so to speak, Amitayus, um, which translates Amita as the same, limitless, measureless, or boundless, or infinite, and then Ayu is the word for life. But it can also mean, Ayu can also mean a living being, or a person. So it's, again, it's like, it could be limitless persons, uh, something like that, or limitless living forms, or something, um, which... Uh, again, uh, might suggest, it's a little less strong, but it might suggest something of this infinite possibility of images to be created, discovered. 
So there's a possibility there. What does it mean then to meditate on Amitabha? What does it mean to pray to Amitabha and to pray to, pray to be reborn in that pure land? And before I get to that, um, maybe you can already guess a possibility there, or uh, your soul suggests possibilities. But um, these uh, primordial Buddhas in the Mahayana have... Um, Kind of, they're called consorts. So they have a, a male and female. Generally, it's portrayed as a male and female counterpart, but they're actually um, they're not really separate. So the the female consort or counterpart is is said to be the prajna of the Buddha. And prajna actually, you, some of you will know, is, uh, panya in Pali is is the word for wisdom. So this. Female, it's really the female aspect. It's the same essence as the Buddha. Um, and it's called the prajna of the Buddha. And of that Buddha. And so uh, Amitabha's prajna, Amitabha's female consort, and they're depicted in yabhyam, in erotic um, sexual embrace, in sexual intercourse. They're actually depicted as parts. One Buddha depicted as two in a pure land. So you could say self-other-world is right there. Um... Uh, some erotic union and a world that it generates, uh, a pure land that it generates. Amitabha's prajna, Amitabha's um, uh, consort, um, uh, other half, so to speak, is um, is same in essence and is pandara, pandaravasini actually, which means literally uh, white-robed. Uh, one who is white-robed. So she wears a white robe, but she's actually red in colour, as is Amitabha. Um, and in, in, in being red, she is the embodiment of the fire element, and also the embodiment of passion or lust. So this Buddha's consort is the embodiment of passion and lust and the fire element. She is also called Ragarati, which literally means Ragarati, passion and lust. Um, and she holds a lotus in her hands. Um, so, now some uh, Vajrayana texts say when the passion or lust that are defilements is transmuted, it becomes the wisdom of discriminating awareness. We could actually keep, and some Vajrayana traditions as well, as keep both. Keep, uh, keep the passion and the lust, but transmute it through the erotic imaginal, so that it's not rarefied, it's not concretized, etc. It becomes imaginal. It becomes uh, full of dimension, full of beauty, full of divinity, um, shot through with the imaginal middle way, neither real nor not real, etc. We can keep the passion of us transmuted that way through its um, imaginal trans transmutation, transfiguration, transubstantiation, maybe a better word. And we can have the gifts that it gives, which is the wisdom of discriminating awareness. Um, uh, or distinguishing wisdom, sometimes it's called. Um, so Amitabha uh, goes with the aggregate of perception, and that perception, um, in its, let's say, its enlightened form, its primordially enlightened form, is the gateway, uh, or, or is transubstantiated in its primordially enlightened form to intuitive vision. Which again, what does that mean? Intuitive vision. It might mean, or we could uh, 
interpret it as meaning we could take that uh, one direction of the etymology, etc., their intuitive vision, maybe imaginal perception, the transformation of the aggregate of perception into imaginal perception, into intuitive vision, imaginal perception. And the distinguishing wisdom there, to distinguish means to keep separate, to keep things separate. So again here, it's not a kind of wisdom that dissolves everything into oneness. It's, a dis- it's an intuitive vision, an imaginal perception that uh, retains discriminating awareness, distinguishing wisdom. There are all kinds of other possibilities that we could have uh, tracked through the etymology that open up different directions. I just want to open up this one now because of the obvious connection it has with um, the work that we've been talking about with sensing the soul. But distinguishing means um, perception does not melt into less fabrication, a state of less fabrication, some oneness or other. That's fine for some other Buddha. Um, this Buddha, Amitabha, opening up the uh, distinguishing wisdom and the imaginal perception, the intuitive perception, this limitless appearances um, of his name. Um, and so again here, remember, remember the, the corollary that we, that we established, um, Eros needs tunus. It doesn't collapse into oneness. Even when it knows oneness, it doesn't... Um, end there or collapse there. It needs tunas and it also creates and discovers tunuses. So the world of imaginal perception, the world of sensing the soul, for the most part needs tunuses. So this transubstantiation of the perception into distinguishing wisdom goes with the eros of the, uh, that is the um, appropriate kind of, uh, one of the appropriate affects uh, or uh, kinds of desire in the mundus imaginalis, in the pure land of limitless appearances. Um, <clears throat> let, let me uh, throw something in here that I've, I think I've actually touched on in um, in another retreat, and I can't remember which one. Um, but when we talk about these um, uh, Vajrayana deities, um, uh, or primordial Buddhas, uh, or, or Bodhisattvas, or Yidams, or deity yoga. Um, when we talk about tantric deity yoga, or even in repeating a mantra that's connected with a uh, uh, a tantric deity, uh, like Amitabha or, or whoever, um, we we can delineate, and I think it's really important to delineate um, various, uh, if you like stances, relationships, attitudes, poises, um, which we could conceive, which we could inhabit at any time, and we could conceive of them, we could conceive them hierarchically, but we also don't have to, but we could say hierarchically, one is, um, let's say, a mantra or a prayer or something, it's an invocation that is a kind of supplication and an opening to uh, the other, to this deity, um, and a surrendering to what is bigger than me, bigger than you, and more powerful. There's the humility there and a heartfelt opening. But it's me and the deity. Uh, and with, with the beauty of the humility, the supplication, the opening, the surrender, etc. 
A second level, if you like, is more of a kind of harmonizing of the consciousness and the psyche and the soul and the whole being and the energy body uh, harmonizing with the qualities of that deity that is invoked um, by the mantra or focused on in the meditation, uh, etc. Um, so the mantra or the prayer and the, if it's a visualization or whatever, it's just a sense invoking and uh, uh, these qualities and um, involving those qualities. So for example, Avalokiteshvara's compassion or Christ's mercy um, uh, or Yamantaka's fearless power uh, to destroy what needs to be destroyed. Um, in meditating upon them, in reciting the mantra, in prayer, in in just um, soul resonance with them, there's a kind of harmonizing of our being with the qualities, you like, if you like, of of the deity's being, and that estab- that that cultivates something in our being. Um, and a third level we might talk about is a kind of um, union with or fusion with a becoming uh, oneself becomes the deity the energy body becomes the body of the deity there's a kind of as I said, a fusing or unity so that we actually experience our body as divine and we sense the world then if one opens one's eyes or even uh, listens or whatever we sense the world um, and others with the senses of that deity through their eyes through their um, ears um, with their vision with their um, their kind of knowing their kind of sensing um, So in that way, uh, and their feeling for things, you know, their their erotic relationship with things, their love relationship with things, their compassionate meta relationship with beings and the world, and in that way, th- there's a kind of cosmohesis. There's a trans transforming, transubstantiation, better word, of the cosmos in doing so. Um, so there's a kind of fullness there in that union. Um, it's more than we just say, imagine you're the deity. We actually uh, enter into the deity's experience of body, of matter, of world, etc. So we could conceive of them of hi- hi- hierarchically, those three levels, a sort of um, definite d- division, but... Uh, in the first one, between self and deity, but there's an attitude of supplication, surrender, uh, humility, uh, a kind of harmonizing, if you like, energetically and psychically as a second level, and a third level, a kind of union with or becoming, and the transubstantiation of the world that's involved there. Um, but I would like to retain the, pos- the, 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 the openness to all three. So yes, you could say the third one is more kind of complete or advanced, if you even want to use that word. But actually there's beauty in that first one, of the two-ness, of the separateness. And why not actually, just as you know, the Buddha taught eight jhanas, but actually didn't, didn't then just say, once you've learned all eight, then just practice the eighth. He kept all eight open. 
they're all uh, valuable, even though you could talk about a kind of hierarchy there. So I would really like to keep all, all of those open when we talk about these kinds of practices and these kinds of uh, um, soul-making practices. But when we come back to uh, Amitabha specifically, and as I mentioned, uh, it's a traditional, very common um, in the Mahayana world, um, the prayer to be reborn in the Western paradise, in Amitabha's pure land. But now, when, when we kind of opened up the etymology and the idea of what Amitabha could be by l- looking at those different connections, um, there's all kinds of possibilities to open up, but we could conceive um, this prayer to be reborn in Amitabha's pure land could also be conceived as a a focusing and harnessing of the aspiration and intention to enter now into the Mundus Imaginalis. So one's praying, one's really um, opening in in humility and intention and orientation and uh, eros and devotion One's asking uh, and orienting and intending to enter now into the mundus imaginalis, into the world that's sensed with soul, which means to perceive imaginally, to sense this world or or another world as sacred, beautiful, multidimensional and profound, meaningful, divine, empty, meaning neither real nor not real. So that could be a sense of another world, that's not this world. It could be this world perceived now, sensed now with soul, perceived, imagined now, sensed now with soul. Right, we've been through that. But in praying, um, in praying for that, to enter into Amitabha's pure land, here and now, in praying, not in a future life, here and now, in praying for that, one is, um, in the act of prayer, in the stance and the poise and the attitude of prayer, one is acknowledging the necessity of grace, of humility, and that the soul and the divine are greater than my ego, my will, my skill, mastery. We've said all this before in relation to the imaginal. So that prayer has, or, or the attitude of prayer, the gesture of prayer, the soul movement, the pr- movement of prayer, has all this uh, idea of grace, attitude of humility, attitude of soul and divinity being much bigger than self, um, not completely um, uh, available to my uh, technical mastery and my will. also bigger than my current experience and conception of them. All of this we've touched on before, so that the receptivity is there in the prayer as well. Ideas of grace, humility, receptivity, all of that. Um, so, some of you may have been aware that people pray to be reborn in Amitabha's pure land, etc. But we can um, open up other possibilities for what that means in practice, for our practice. Uh, I, I think it's very, very beautiful, very um, uh, potentially um, fertile ways. <coughs> while, while we're on the subject of... Um, 
tantric deities or primordial Buddha, Buddhas and meditating or praying with them. Um, I want to say something. Um, it may be a reminder, it may not, but it's an important one, I feel. Um, so oftentimes, um, the way this is taught, or at least what many people pick up from um, the teachings about meditating on um, Vajrayana deities or primordial Buddhas or Bodhisattvas or, um, is a kind of um, uh, emphasis and necessity of um, kind of capturing um, at, at one time in the meditation all the details of the image that is prescribed. Um, or described. So Amitabha needs to be this color and he's wearing this and he's holding this in his hand, he's holding this in his other hand and his feet are this and etc. Uh, etc. Et and he's uh, got his hair like this or he's got so many arms and there's this in one hand and this in another hand and etc. And there's a lot of detail in some of these icons and um, sometimes a practitioner gets the idea that I've somehow got a develop the skill of holding all that together in the meditation, which alone becomes a kind of feat of visualization and memory. Um, but I, I want to say that in, pra- in practicing this, as, as with all things, we need to make it work for us at any time. And make it work means make it soulful, that it feels, you can feel the energy body um, opening, harmonizing, coming into alignment. You can feel the soul resonances. You can feel um, those qualities, the aspects of the imaginal start to ignite, start to open up. Um, that's what it means to work, for a meditation to work. And that, you know, what it takes for a meditation to work, any meditation at any time varies. It's, it's not just a kind of checklist. It's not just a formula that works the same every time. So again, we need to be sensitive and responsive. What, what, what's actually, what actually gives me a sense of um, soulfulness and soul fecundity right now? And that this practice is, is actually opening something up for me. So it might be that, um, in fact, it often is the case that it's not necessary to include all the prescribed or described details um, that of this deity or of this icon or of this mandala or whatever um, at one time in a meditation or even at all in one meditation session. It's much more important, I think, to support the possibilities um, of experiencing resonating, as I said, soul-making in the energy body, in the emotions, for example, devotion to some degree or some kind of shade or color, which and sometimes that's very subtle. So again, we're not looking necessarily for fireworks, or it's more like you can some sometimes devotion, for example, eros is uh, as another example is is very subtle. Doesn't mean that things are not working. So we need to be attuned, uh, alert, receptive to um, open to a range of subtlety and intensity for the sense of what's working. Um, but uh, so it's more important to to 
support the possibility of experiencing soul-making resonances, energy body, emotional um, openings and connections, and meaningfulness and all that. So that might be really slowing down. If you're familiar with, or you've been taught um, perhaps elsewhere, um, these kinds of visualizations and meditations in Vajrayana practices, um, and maybe you've been taught this, maybe not, but I'll say it just in case you... you, you you haven't, um, can be worth really slowing down and just dwell with or dwell on maybe one aspect or two aspects or, or facets of this deity or of this mandala or whatever. Um, perhaps even the relationship between those two aspects. Um, uh, that's really, 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 really helpful. And, and, and necessary to kind of uh, build that up. It's not necessarily even the case that the more aspects you get at one time, uh, the more better, you know, the better it is, or whatever. Um, so if it's, if it, it could be one, it could be, um, it could be a couple of the aspects. So, um, <clears throat> For example, um, Amitabha is often in a mandala uh, opposite the Buddha Akshobhya. Um, and uh, I'll talk about that in, in a minute. Akshobhya is, uh, literally means um, indestructible or immutable or something like that. Um, and so what one can do, uh, perhaps when you get a little bit used to each one on its own, um, uh, is, is you can put them, you can meditate on their relationship or interplay, if you like. And what the resonances and effects of meditating on that relationship. So say, if we interpret Amitabha as uh, the, 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 the Buddha and, and the, uh, who opens the world um, of limitless appearances, the mundus imaginalis, etc., as we've been using that kind of concept. And what does that mean to put that opposite or in relationship or balanced by Akshobhya, the Buddha of the immutable? What's immutable? The unfabricated, perhaps, is immutable, being beyond time. Or emptiness is immutable, unchangeable. What is it to put that world of imaginal perception uh, opposite or balanced by or in relationship or in dialogue with or interplay with um, the, the wisdom that knows the immutable, the wisdom that knows the unfabricated, or the wisdom that knows the thorough, deep, radical emptiness. So one can, um, if you like, uh, um, yes, med- include those two aspects and meditate on their balance or, or connection or whatever. But if if you're opening it to two, it should feel doable, going back to what I said before. Um, in other words, that again, it feels soulful, fertile for the soul, for the heart, uh, etc. In all the ways we can recognize that. Um, in the moment, alive, resonant, workable, approachable. Um, so... It might be, as I said, you work first with one aspect and then and then build it up in time. But it's not necessarily the more you do, the better, or anything like that. Um, so as always, what actually works right now? Right now, what is helpful? That's always a question in meditation. 
Um, or just as another example, you could meditate on the erotic embrace, the, the sexual intercourse, the yabhyam of Amitabha and Pandara. The, the, the goddess of passion and lust and this uh, Buddha of the imaginal realm, this Buddha of limitless uh, images. Uh, but there's there's all kinds of possibilities here, and especially once if you've been introduced to these kinds of practices and mandalas and, and stuff like that. Um, <clears throat> one of the um, reasons for doing this kind of thing is sometimes to bring more balance. Uh, so, um, as as I mentioned, for example, um, Akshobhya, this uh, Buddha of the immutable, uh, something like the diamond, the vajra, is also immutable. It's indestructible, is another word. Um, it is opposite Amitabha, so it's kind of balancing it in the mandala. Mandalas are often quite balanced structures. They often kind of uh, cross with something in the middle, so it's very uh, yes, geometrically balanced. Um, so what is it to balance, as I said, um, uh, the emptiness with the imaginal, the knowing of the emptiness with the perceiving of the imaginal, the knowing of the emptiness with the sensing of soul. Um, you place these things in counterpoint, in relationship, in balance. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, or perhaps um, one does the same thing with the emptiness and the uh, the deity of, of passion and lust, ragarati. And what does that mean? Emptiness and and the erotic uh, icon. Um, <clears throat> and I should also add, you know, all this is very amenable to flexible to finding ways that work for you right now. So <clears throat> um, it might be that you feel, well, I've, I've done a little bit of emptiness, but you know, I hear some things that you say, or another teacher says, and I think I'm not I'm not there yet. You know, at that level, um, it doesn't matter. So take the realization of emptiness <coughs> that, that's kind of um, infusing Akshobhya in this example, the, 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 the Buddha of uh, the immutable, um, the indestructible. Whatever realization of emptiness makes sense to you. So it might be that um, uh, it might be something like the unfabricated. It might be more something like a big awareness, and that's that's what you've opened to so far in a way that makes a difference for you, and you're kind of equating emptiness and vast awareness, and you might have heard me say, well, that's not really the final deal there. Um, no problem. Just uh, be, be, be flexible. Take that level of understanding that you have digested and absorbed, and... Um, and and that's what's embodied, if you like, by Akshobhya in that example to balance the imaginal, uh, the, the mundus imaginalis, the sensing of soul. Um, or it could be, uh, you know, a, a really deep understanding of emptiness, the Dharmakaya as the non-dual Buddha's gnosis, uh, which includes appearances. Some of you heard me talk about that. Um, uh, And sometimes, you know, this, um, it might be that we just kind of vaguely sort of, it's just a Buddha who understands emptiness, and we're aware that, uh, this Akshobhya, and we're aware that, um, I don't quite understand emptiness, but this guy does. And 
and it's a kind of vague concept or image really of this Buddha that embodies and is, if you like, the the uh, the, the consciousness that um, thoroughly knows all emptiness. And it can be sometimes in doing that um, that even we don't quite know what it means, and our conception's a little bit vague there, but somehow, magically, or by some kind of magic invocation, we actually experience a deeper understanding of emptiness than we knew we had, or that we were conscious of, or had realized consciously until now. Um, What's going on now? Uh, If you stay around the Dharma long enough, there's and as a teacher I know there's all kinds of instances of this, where people um, experience something uh, not in a linear way, that's kind of way beyond where they think they are. And I touched on this when I when I was talking about maps and trajectories in the talk on awakening. Um, so in this in this instance, let's say we're just talking about meditating or akshobhya, balancing or opposite or in kind of a soul dialogue with um, Amitabha, the, the Buddha of the imaginal perception, the deity of the imaginal perception. Um, and, and we just... Emptiness. I don't even know what that means, and and it works some kind of magic. What is that? My, your intuitive wisdom already knows something. Is it the power of images? Is it the collective unconscious of Jung? Is it is it the power of of poetry? Uh, I'm just mentioning that as a possibility again in the whole this whole realm of the place of ideas in sensing with soul. You know, sometimes the idea is vague, uh, and the conception is vague. And sometimes we get, it delivers something beyond where we, where we are. Or we can plug in something that we already know, and that's really, really great. It doesn't have to be the final deal, or whatever. The Zen master Hakuin uh, wrote a song of Zen. Uh, it's very beaut- beautiful, splendid um, text, not very long. And... The last three lines uh, read something like, Nirvana is right here before our eyes. This very place is the lotus land, this very body, the Buddha. Nirvana is right here before our eyes. This very place is the pure land, this very body, the Buddha. Um... The text up to that point, uh, in Hakuin's Song of Zen it's called, and um, the text up to that point is, is a lot about emptiness. And uh, it's not very long, so it just alludes to it. Um, but it's, emptiness is one of the ways that make possible that kind of way of looking that he's talking about. This very land is the pure land, is the lotus land, this very body, the Buddha. Um, so sometimes when we talk about the pure land, as I mentioned, with the pure land of Amitabha, the pure land of limitless appearance, um, and uh, the Eros implicit in that with his consort Ragarati, um, sometimes uh, we have a sense of a kind of world beyond this one, as an imaginal perception or events or whatever happening in that world. But there's also the possibility, as I alluded to, of um, that pure land being here, this world transubstantiated. And uh, that's what Hakuin is uh, alluding to in those last three lines there. And one of the, one of the things that makes that possible is, 
a thorough knowledge of emptiness, thorough understanding of emptiness, makes possible ways of looking at see um, the way that he is describing, see the here and now in that way, becomes something akin to the mundus imaginalis. This world sensed with soul. But also, uh, if we think, what gives rise to this perception, this possibility, or this range of possibilities, of ways of looking, um, of seeing, the, sensing the world that way? And there's also the possibility of um, uh, that devotion gives rise to it. Uh, or devotion has its place, or sanctifying a relationship with this world that takes care to sanctify the things of this world and the relationships of this world. Um, through prayer, through blessing, through ritual, through uh, whatever it is. Um, and generally speaking, through, through sensing with soul, this kind of uh, sensing is open that Hakuin is alluding to, this pure land of, of the Buddha. So we mentioned, um, I think it was when uh, I was talking briefly about that passage of God uh, speaking, calling uh, Abraham. Lechlecha, uh, and I, I talked about that, and we talked about how we can hear uh, or read what's uh, in certain texts, for instance, the Old Testament or the New Testament, or whatever. We can hear them um, timelessly, eternally, understand them as giving an eternal uh, and timeless teaching about soul, about spirit, etc., about divinity, about humanity, and. Um, not so much as a literal uh, text about the history of um, a certain people or nation or, or whatever and everything, that, the problems that come out of uh, interpreting scripture that way in such a literalized, concretized um, and then acted out way. There was a Jewish mystic, a Kabbalist, in the, uh, I guess the 12th century, called Abraham Abu Lafia, and um, very influential, uh, somewhat controversial, very influential. And he, uh, so we're talking about the idea of the uh, transmutation, transubstantiation of the perception of the world, so that it becomes the pure land of the Buddha. Um, and he uh, interprets a uh, passage in the Old Testament, um, a passage from Deuteronomy, which I'll, I'll read um, after I've said a few words um, uh, conveying what, what he's, some of what he said about it. So it's a passage where God talks about um, the, 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 the Holy Land, and uh, and God says uh, to to the people, He said, um, so that uh, He says, keep my commandments, so that you will long endure on the land that God swore to your fathers that He would give them and their offspring, a land flowing with milk and honey. Um, and 
Abu Lafi says this actually refers to the supernal land, which is exalted over all exalted lands. So he's saying this is this refers to the supernal means the uh, the higher or the the, um, the the land on high, um, the whole the holy land, not as a geographical um, earthly place. Um, the the supernal land is is an imaginal perception. It's um, potentially this land where I am now, sensed with soul. Um, so Abu Lafi makes the point, there's a whole other level here to uh, um, that, that needs attention, that needs opening up, than the uh, concrete material uh, level. So it's, um, and he points out that in the passage that he's referring to, which I'll read later, um, there's the word today. And when it says today in the Old Testament, he said today means eternally. Today means now, which means timelessly, which means always. So this whole thing is to be interpreted um, out of time. Not as This is not a historical report of some event in history. Uh, or certainly not only that. Um, so... Uh, another passage that Abu Lafia... Um, Quotes is uh, from the Old Testament, and you who cleave to the Lord your God are all alive today. You who uh, are in intimate relationship with God are all alive today. And again, the today uh, uh, it um, gives the sense of eternality, of timelessness. So he writes, from here we gather that one from this, and you who cleave to the Lord your God are all alive today. And then he says, from here we gather that one who does not cleave to God does not live in eternity. That doesn't mean live forever in heaven. It means um, live with the sense of the eternal. Have that timeless perception uh, when you're out of relationship with the divine. Today is the always present. For this reason, the verse adds the word today. So too, in all instances where the Torah refers to the constancy of something, it uses the word today, or heaven and earth, or sun and moon, or another of the constant forms of the world. Um, so, again, he's pointing to a whole other way of reading and listening and interpreting um, scripture, in this case the Old Testament. Um, let me read that whole passage. I, I uh, and and if you listen to it this way, um, again, not as a, a literal history with all kinds of nationalistic implications, um, and not just as metaphor. So we're talking about something larger than what we commonly mean metaphor. Uh, if you hear it. Um, uh, you will realize, if you hear it and, and have experienced um, kind of cosmopoesis or sensing the soul and the kinds of things we're talking about in different ways, you can hear it with the ear of that experience, those experiences and that knowledge and how that's touched your soul. And you hear, that it's possible to hear this as much more than metaphor, as uh, saying, uh, you know, um, if, you, um, if you keep the commandments then you'll feel good and... Um, things will seem nice. Can we hear it uh, in a different way? 
in, in, in line with at the level of what we're talking about. So God says in this passage from Deuteronomy, he says, um, God says, so keep or, or observe all the commandments, all the mitzvot, that means all the rules of the law that um, sanctify every element of existence, um, different blessings or prescribed behavior or attitudes or, or whatever. Um, keep all that, observe all that, um, all those um, practices, basically, that help to sanctify the elements of your existence. Um, observe all those that I'm giving you today, so that you may live long in the land that God swore to your fathers that he would give them and their offspring. A land flowing with milk and honey. Can you, can you hear this poetically? Can you hear it um, speaking of this, what happens when we sanctify this world uh, and or the things of this world then uh, w- the, the world, the land opens up, a land flowing with milk and honey, not like the land of Egypt from which you have come, the land of bondage of slavery, of limitation of burden and imposition heaviness but a land of mountains and valleys that, drink ra- that drinks rain from heaven a land your God cares for. Can you hear all this in, 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 in the terms, uh, translated in, into the terms that we've been talking about? A land your God cares for. The eyes of your God are continually on it from the beginning of the year to its end. So if you faithfully obey the commandments, these um, rites and rituals and laws and practices of sanctification, if you faithfully obey the commandments I am giving you today, to love your God and to serve him with all your heart and with all your soul, then I will send rain on your land in its season, both autumn and spring rains, so that you may gather in your grains new wine and oil. I will provide grass in the fields for your cattle, and you will eat and be satisfied. Can, can you hear that uh, with, with the richness of the depth and dimensionality that, that we've been uh, talking about in, in these teachings? It's, it's, more, it's certainly way more than literalistic, concrete, concretized, and, and then therefore nationalistic, and, and much more than what we typically call metaphor. Can you hear it that way and hear, hear um, uh, the sense of the world opening up that way in that beauty, in that dimensionality, in that holiness? In, in this text, in the poetry of the text, the richness of it. So this kind of thing is common in different traditions. Henri Corbin quotes from the fifth imam of the Shiites of the Islamic Shiites, and um, this imam lived um, in the first and second centuries after Muhammad, and he said or wrote, this fifth imam, the sacred book, the Quran, is alive, it will never die, its verses will be fulfilled among the people of the future as they have been fulfilled among those of the past. And Corbin's point about this is, the point is, 
it's not to be inter- the, the Quran, the Old Testament, the New Testament. They're not to be interpreted um, historically. Certainly not only historically. Let's say that. Um, so that usually people come and they trap. They make uh, uh, the significance of the sacred book. Quran says captive to the date of its material composition stifling any potential for a significance that goes beyond the, quote, past. Um, and and what, he, what he wants to open up is that uh, rather than these kind of historical interpretations, there is um, the uh, idea of the presence of what he calls spiritual universes that symbolize with each other by means of a comparable architecture and in relation to which what we call history is uh, a history that is a mimesis, a, a mimicking, an echoing, a mirroring. So, um, what's he saying here? He's saying that this um, world that everyone takes for granted, the conventional perception of a his- historical material world and written history, is kind of have has parallel universes. And we've touched on this before in previous retreats of sort of levels of worlds that echo, as I said, mirror, um, in some ways kind of interpenetrate um, this world. So that um, this moment right now, and this event right now, whatever it is, is um, both uh, echoing and echoes, uh, uh, sorry, is um, echoed by and also echoes um, a similar event, if you like, in, in a world at another level. They symbolize with each other um, by means of a comparable architecture. A mimesis, as Corbin says. Um, the so so. This is a matter of perception. It's a matter of sensing with soul, as we said. If we come back to Mahayana teachings, and there's this notion actually in all the yanas of Buddhism. There's a notion called uh, Dharma Dhatu. Some of you may have come across this word, Dharma Dhatu. And it is a word that's um, kind of, I think, inherently ambiguous, actually. Um, but uh, we, we can identify quite a number of interpretations, but you could kind of divide the interpretations loosely among the different yanas, um, the Hinayana, the Mahayana, and the Vajrayana. So that taking the word dhatu, which itself uh, has a number of different meanings, um, to, it can mean ayatana. And ayatana means something like sphere or dimension or world region. So the dharma dimension or, or something like that. And in the first turning of the wheel, if you like, what the dharma dhatu um, might refer to is the uh, when it's used... Uh, might refer to the unfabricated. If you remember that ayatana, that dimension should be known, monks, where there is no sight, smell, sound, taste, touch, um, and thought, and mental imagery. Remember that quote? The Buddha's pointing to that unfabricated, that dimension, that ayatana, that dhatu, needs to be known, must be known, should be known. 
So in the in the uh, Theravan teaching, it might have that um, level of meaning or interpretation. This Dharma Dhatu. In the Mahayana teaching, the word is used more often, I think, than in the Theravadan. And um, it seems, again, it has a range of meaning, but it seems to take on more of the meaning. The Dharma Dhatu is, is, the, um, the, is the emptiness of inherent existence, or is the, um, the emptiness of the inherent existence of things, uh, of dharmas. And um, uh, that's the meaning uh, in in the Mahayana, one of the prominent, one of the most uh, common meanings in the Mahayana, it's not then totally transcendent of appearances and perceptions, uh, as the mm, as the interpretation of Dharma is unfabricated, uh, where there's no perception, no appearance. Here we retain appearances, but it's the it's the appearances that are empty. It's the it's the it, the Dharma Dhatu is the world of emptiness uh, and appearance fused together. In the Vajrayana, in the third turning of the wheel, um, it seems one of the meanings that it can sometimes mean by Dharma Dhatu is the Buddha realms, is the pure lands. And so it might be something um, some, somewhat akin to the Mundus Imaginaris, the world of divine appearances, or the Sambhogakaya, if you know that bodies of the Buddha. D.T. Suzuki, uh, the Zen teacher, Zen master, um, describes uh, the Dharma Dhatu in his uh, commentary on the Gandavyuha Sutra. Um, the Buddha of the Gandavyuha lives in a spirit world which has its own rules. Uh, says there's no time continuity there in that world. And the Buddha in the Gandavyuha thus knows no time continuity. The past and the future are both rolled up in the present moment of illumination. As with time, so with space. Space in the Gandavyuha is not an extension divided by mountains and forests. You have here rather an infinite mutual fusion or penetration of all things each with its own individuality, yet with something universal in it. Uh, to illustrate the state of existence, the Gandavyuha makes everything transparent and luminous, for luminosity is the only possible earthly representation that conveys the idea of universal interpenetration. There are rivers, flowers, trees, etc. in the land of purity, uh, hard to describe, and the clouds themselves are luminous bodies, inconceivable and inexpressible in number, hanging all over the Jetawana, uh, which is Jetta's grove uh, of the Gandavyuha. The, this universe of luminosity, the scene of interpenetration, is, is known as the Dharmadhatu, in contrast to the Lokadhatu, the world of uh, this, this usual world. The Dharmadhatu is a real existence and not separated from the conventional world, the Lokadhatu, but is not the same as the latter when we do not come up to the spiritual level where the Bodhisattvas are living. So the point is, um, 
when we come up to the spiritual level where the bodhisattvas are living, you could say, when we practice emptiness, when that gives us the... Um, that opens the doorway to sensing the soul, or when we just sense with soul, even if our emptiness uh, meditation is not uh, fully realized, then this world is perceived uh, as the same as the Dhammapada. Dhammapada is right here, but it's it's become, uh, it's perceived, it's transubstantiated. You understand? The Dhammadhatu in, in, in the sense, uh, in the interpretation given to it in the third turning, in the Vajrayana. So it's the state of the soul that allows this kind of perception. Ari Corbin writes, again, um, in as much as the place of uh, a, a spiritual being is his internal state, the garden or paradise, and now we have a different metaphor of the Garden of Eden or the, the paradise, um, as this Dharmadhatu, as this holy land, is therefore, uh, he writes, the celestial man himself, is therefore the, um, the soul himself, his internal state. trees of the garden are all his possible perceptions of love and intelligence of the good and the true. So the availability of sensing ourselves in in that paradise, in the holy land, in the garden of Eden um, comes from the uh, the state of the soul. As William Blake say, as a man is, so he sees. In the moment, I would add. But again then the question is, what enables us to open up these um, these perceptions, this sensing the soul, this sensing of the pure land, the lotus land, the garden of Eden, the paradise, the holy land. Um, I go back to Abraham Abu Lafia again. And uh, he has uh, a, I think, wonderful um, passage, which is going to take a little bit of explaining. Um, so, He's interpreting a passage from scripture, and there is the word in Hebrew, v'hakosef, and that word means um, the one who yearns for, the one who yearns. And now I have to explain something called gematria. Okay, so gematria is a Hebrew word, and it means um, the manipulation of uh, the numerical the possible numerical values of letters. So Hebrew is a language where the letters of the alphabet, the 22 letters of the alphabet, also are given numerical equivalents. So if we had it in English, we'd say A is 1, B is 2, C is uh, 3, D is 4, etc. Um, uh, e is 5, like that, and then, and then you get hundreds, etc. 
So what, what you have then is the a sacred text becomes um, uh, interpretable in, in so many different ways by virtue of the meditation on its individual letters and the words. And some, some of that is through the numerical equivalence. So you can, for instance, add up um, the numerical equivalent. So if we had, like I just went A, B, C, D, E. So if I, if I took um, bad, B, A, D, what would that be? It would be 2, B, plus A, 1, plus D, 4, which is 7. 2 plus 1 plus 4 is 7. And then maybe I had another word... Um, I can't think of it. Yeah. Uh, gee, this is going to be too difficult. But <laughs> um, you could find another word, let's say, that uh, makes uh, makes up seven, and there would be some kind of connection or equivalence or interchangeability or um, use of interpretation of those two words in relationship to each other. Um, and then there's all kinds of other numerical uh, manipulations that you can do. So the whole thing becomes um, really uh, a quite creative, interpretive endeavor, uh, which I'll give an example in, in a moment. Um, now, we could hear that and just say, well, that's, that's just nonsense, and it's silly, and it's kind of crazy. But what if we're actually using that to... Uh, we enter into an ideation, a concept, a logos, where, where that's available to us. Um, that the ideas that that spawns and the connection it makes of ideas, again, become ways of looking for the sake of soul-making, for the sake of the sense of holiness, for the sake of opening up different understandings of divinity, of existence, etc. Um... So let me give this example from Abu Lafia. He's talking about this word, Bahakosev, uh, the one who yearns. And so when you take away the letters, uh, reconstruct those letters, sort of parse it, and, and what you can get is um, three different, three smaller words, and they each add up to 26 and 65 and 86. Uh, and 26 is numerically the same as the word for Yahweh, or God, uh, it adds up, which also adds up to 26. Um, 65 is numerically the same as the word Adonai, which is another word for God. And 86 is the same uh, numerical equivalent as Elohim, which is the third main uh, word for the divine in the Old Testament. Somehow in this word that means literally the one who yearns, you get the three names of God. Is it pointing to something, a clue for practice, that in the very yearning is the opening of the gates? And even at three levels, three levels of the divine, if you like, the one who yearns has the key to the doors, in the yearning, in the movement of devotion, is the opening of the perception. Okay, when you add up these, um, the numerical equivalents of these three names of God, 26, 65, and 86, you get, uh, for Yahweh, 
Adonai Elohim, you get 177. 177 is equivalent to three meals, shalosh seudot in Hebrew. Shalosh means three seudot, three meals, uh, which actually is 1,176. So that's not 177, but 1,176, one plus 176 is 177. So again, this is not, this is going to sound completely crazy. A, even ascribing or making connections through language, um, through the number equivalents of language, can sound completely bonkers. And then these kind of um, twists of the numerology here. Um, but the point is, it can open up meditations. So what does meals, what's a meal? Some kind of nourishment, some kind of thing that we receive or that we prepare, that we digest, somehow connected to three levels of God. Um, and so the point is, if we hear it just again abstractly or some clever number thing, and then these two seemingly unrelated concepts are put together, it's not it's going to just sound bizarre and not make any impact. But again, going back to what I said right at the beginning of this talk, if we linger, if we let this work poetically, if we put those two concepts um, or images in relationship to other in our meditation, just as we did with Amitabha and Akshobhya, then what happens? Then there's some kind of alchemy or fertility or connection or opening that can happen in the soul. So, Slightly more complicated transformation, but 1,176 can be construed as 1 and 176, which is 177, back to the three names of God. Or the, uh, it can go further, this 177 can be Shalosh Ma'alot. Three levels, three qualities. Shalosh again means three Ma'alot levels. So three meals, whatever meals mean, what can that mean poetically, meals to you? Three levels of the divine, all connected with or opened by the one who yearns. And then uh, this can also be um, equated numerically to the word belima. Belima means silence. And how does it connect? Because belima, actually, uh, the strict numerical equivalent is 87 if we do the letters there. But 87 is, um, you could say 8 plus 7 is 15. And 15 is made up from 1 plus 1 plus 7 plus 6, as we, as we uh, took those individual numbers earlier. And one more. The Garden of Eden, Gan Eden. Is uh, comes to 177 as well, when you add that up. So one of his um, uh, students, I think, uh, Rabbi Baruch Togarmi, says, the incantation of the language is the secret of the Garden of Eden. There's one last one, in fact. Yomam Valayla, day and night. What might that mean? poetically to us, day and night. So you've got this connection. One who yearns, three words for God, three levels of God, three meals, the three worlds, different levels, silence, 
mystical silence, garden of Eden, and day and night. And so <coughs> a Kabbalist practicing that tradition would, would um, juggle, manipulate, play with the holy letters of the scripture, taking things apart, putting them together, connecting words with other words, and then meditate on, on that uh, connection, that, that idea connection that was opened, or the image connection that was open there. So, uh, the three, I'm quoting now, the three names whose secrets or whose numerical values are 26, 86, 65, the three names of, uh, for divinity in the Old Testament, are the secret of the stages of the spiritual ladder and are called by the general name of Gan Eden, the Garden of Eden. For by means of their grasp, one enters the Garden of Eden while alive. Does this make sense? It's going to sound completely bonkers if you don't uh, hear it hear it with that poetic sensibility, with that openness to the soul possibilities, with that um, uh, letting it letting letting these kind of things be the seeds of these kind of ideas be planted in the soil. So as I said, we can hear it that way, or we can hear it as what one is doing is using ideas creatively or letting ideas, um, letting the soul suggest ideas that um, can be converted to ways of looking. The one who yearns uh, somehow connects with the Garden of Eden, opens the Garden of Eden. So this... You know, this we go back to that point that I mentioned the other day. Hermeneutics, interpretation, this is what this is involved in, interpreting some scripture through these um, kind of kind of arcane numerical sort of reconfigurations and then meditating on the ideas that that kind of suggests. And and I said the other day, um, interpretation in this sense, the interpretation of text, of holy text, or the interpretation of existence needs to matter otherwise it just it would just be silly it would just sound silly but when it matters when the soul is on fire with it when the soul cares and is passionate something comes alive and possibilities open doors open gates open but also in this particular gematria um you hear one who yearns um the one who yearns. Um, there's, it's not just an intellectual exercise. By that, by that very word, the one who yearns, it, the meaning of it, um, it, the heart is involved, the yearning. So it, 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 the very gematria doesn't lose track of the heart. The heart needs to yearn, it needs to be open, it needs to have that um, attitude of humility that we talked about yearning has that eros and that devotion in it and it has if you remember we were talking about the different kinds of desire and d d discriminating discerning between them and devotional yearning has a sense of dimensionality of of what it yearns for the object that it yearns for the other that it yearns for there's a sense of the dimensionality the unfathomability and the soft and elastic edges of that object so all this is implied in that word the one who yearns and the fact that it matters, and matters to the, so to the soul. So it includes the heart and soul, and it matters to the heart and soul. And that allows um, a, 
a fertilization. It's like water on, on these clumps of soil that are numbers and ancient words in a strange language or whatever. The heart, the moisture, the, the, the waters of the heart um, are, are like pouring water on the soil and we turn the soil. One turns the soil by means of these manipulations or letting these ideas come into contact with each other and all manner of um, imaginal perception uh, opens all manner of sensing the soul, all manner of soul openings. So many possibilities there. What is it that Hakuin said again? Nirvana is right here before our eyes. This very place is the pure land, the lotus land, this very body, the Buddha. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.